darkness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that is here and contained, for your willingness to endure death, even death on a cross, that we might live. Bless us now as we consider these words. Send out your spirit afresh so that we understand and so that we are quickened by them. We pray, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. When God created the world, it was dark. When God covenanted with Abram, there was a deep and dreadful and great darkness that enveloped the place where that covenant was happening and taking place. When God covenanted with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, the mountain was described as a place that was wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Shepherds heard the news of the birth of a Savior at night. Darkness can be frightening. Darkness can be disorienting for us. It is symbolic of death and of abandonment, of sin and of judgment. And you cannot see well, to state the most obvious thing, when it is dark. Luke started off his gospel way back in Luke chapter 1 by quoting a song, a prophecy from Zechariah. And in that song, Zechariah sang about a sunrise, a sunrise that would come on a people who were dwelling in darkness, in the shadow of death. Let's look at this passage today. And to look at this passage today, just going to follow the simple outline that Luke provides for us as he works through this story. We'll look first at the signs that he describes, at the death of Jesus, and then at the reactions to the death of Jesus by the people who were there at the time. We don't know how this darkness happened. We don't know that it was an eclipse. It probably was not an eclipse. It probably was not a storm. It was a divinely appointed darkness that came on the land at about 12 o'clock noon. If you will recall, and I think this is worth thinking about, we were in Exodus just a few months ago, the ninth plague, the penultimate plague, was the plague of darkness. And there's this great line in Exodus that describes it as a darkness that could be felt. And we get that. We we understand what the writer is talking about as he describes such a darkness. That was the plague that took place before the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. And so, at this time, plagues are falling. Jesus is being plagued for mankind. At the death of Jesus, darkness covered the land, veiled the event for three hours, 
As one writer describes, William Hendrickson wrote it this way, darkness covered the land as hell came to Calvary that day. That's what's taking place during those three hours. Hell is being visited on Jesus on the cross. All of the penalties, all of the pains of hell are being visited upon him. All of those broken covenants. So when darkness covers Abraham in the area, Abram in the area where that covenant is being made, and the pledge of death is taken by God himself in passing through those pieces, it's dark because God knows what he's laying upon himself. The same thing with the covenant that is made with Moses. Those laws, that covenant will be broken, be broken by all of humanity. And that darkness, the judgment and the wrath of God, the disobedience of people from the beginning to the end is being poured out on Jesus at that time, in those hours, in that darkness. The darkness is the judgment of God on our sins being laid on the Son of God. And it got the attention of the people who were around, who wondered, what in the world is taking place? Why is it dark right now? as God the Father crushed his son. The other gospel writers give us a couple of other signs that took place at this particular time. Luke, though, points to only one other sign, and that is, of course, the tearing of the temple curtain that he records for us. This happens at or right after the death of Jesus, as it is described in the various Gospels, the other Gospel accounts. Here, what Luke has done is he's grouped the two signs together. So he's dealing with signs, then the death, then the reactions, and that's the reason you have this ordering that we have before us in the passage. Surely this veil that's being described here that was torn is the veil of the temple, the great veil of the temple that divided the remaining portions of the temple from the preeminent place of the temple, the veil that divided and protected the Holy of Holies, the place wherein one could find the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat above it, the place wherein the high priest would go just once per year to offer atonement, blood for the sins of all of the people. And when you say, well, what does it mean? that at this moment, the veil was torn. Well, it means you can go so many places with this, as we saw even in the passage from Hebrews that we quoted earlier for a word of assurance, but we can allow almost Jesus to comment on this with words that we find in other gospels. It is a way of saying, it is finished. It is done. I have come to do this work. I have come to put an end to that system because I have obeyed the law. I have kept the covenant where everyone else broke it. This covenant that is contained within these, this holy of holies, I am the one who has now obeyed this, fulfilled all of the obligations, fulfilled my own priesthood, and offered the perfect blood to be able to atone for sin, and it's been accepted. 
That blood was not rejected. It was accepted there by God. No more sacrifices, no more blood, no more priests, no more temple, at least not in this physical sense that we're talking about here. As we read in that assurance of forgiveness passage from Hebrews, with the rending of that veil, access is opened up. A way of communion can now exist between God and man through the flesh and the blood of Jesus, a blood that sprinkles and cleans. I know there's more we can say about the rending of the veil, but that's at the heart of it. There are two great signs then that Luke says accompanied the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion, and the death. The darkness, and with the rending of the veil, what I'd like to say, a crack in the darkness, an opening that took place in the midst of that dark night or that dark time. Let's now move to the death of Jesus itself. Gets one verse. We've been writing the whole gospel for this moment, and it's said for us in one verse, and we hear his words spoken. Verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was faithful to the very last breath. The last words that he spoke, the last breath that he took, he needed to be the perfectly obedient son. He needed to be the perfectly obedient son of Joseph and Mary and of his heavenly father from the very first breath that he took and the first cries that he uttered as a baby to this last one and this last cry. No other child of Adam and Eve was that. No other child had that perfection. It was necessary that Jesus, in a way that David never could, be this unrighteous servant, uh, excuse me, this righteous servant that was persecuted as if he was unrighteous, that we read about in Psalm 31 just a little bit ago. And according to the will of Jesus, according to the will of his Father, Jesus then gives up his life, lays down his life. No one took it from him, not the Jewish leadership, not the Romans, not the soldiers who nailed him, nor the crowds who scoffed, nor the cross itself. No one takes it from him. He has the authority to take it up, lay it down. It belongs to him and to him alone. And he yielded his spirit to the final sentence of sin, namely death. All of his suffering to this point had to get to this point. Without that last breath, there is no salvation. The tenth plague had to come. It had to be visited. The death of the firstborn had to take place. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, and so he does. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
Jesus' suffering and his death that we read about here, that we consider together in the scriptures, that we confess together as we did with the Belgic Confession, is unique, unique in its efficacy, unique in who he was. It is unlike any other death. It is uniquely able, because of who he is, to accomplish our salvation. And we dare not miss that in addition to saving Jesus, even at this very moment, is providing an example for all who would follow after him, for all who would walk in his steps, as much as this is, or this is in its first place, a saving act of God, it is also an example for us to follow, for the church to follow. Stephen is one of the early deacons in the church, and if you know your Bible, you'll know that Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7. At the end of his martyrdom, this is what we read. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, if that's not imitation, I don't know what is. It's a little bit out of order. Jesus prayed, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just up above. Receive my spirit. You know, we talked last week about what was the answer to Jesus' prayer. Forgive them, for they know not what they did. And we talked about perhaps the first answer to that prayer being the thief who was on the cross next to him. And then beyond that, countless others. But what was the answer to Stephen's prayer? Well, amongst those stoning him was a man named Paul, who was a benefactor of a prayer. Lord, forgive him. Forgive these ones. This is an example for us. Peter, and I can't go into all of 1 Peter but we've got to understand how significant Peter takes these words of Christ, these actions of Christ, in talking about how we as Christians ought to live in this world. He addresses our sufferings, and he says, the sufferings that we are undergoing in this life, however hard this is for us to conceptualize, are actually part of, united to, the sufferings of Christ himself. And in response to that, chapter 4, verse 19 of 1 Peter, he says this, Therefore, because that's true, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the same verb as what Jesus did. Entrusted his soul to his Father. Father, into your hands I entrust, I commit my spirit. Peter says, now that is your example. That's the image for you. And so when you endure it, when you're going through the suffering in this world, how do you handle it? You do what Jesus did. You entrust your soul to your faithful creator and do what's good. 
you keep doing the good thing. When we look at the death of Jesus, we then want to, looking at this, cling zealously to two truths which are not in antithesis to one another. The death of faithful Jesus is the only hope to save a stiff-necked, bumbling, rebelling, hopeless sinner like me. He has done it. I have no other hope. No other hope besides Jesus doing that for me. And B, even in the death of Jesus, is my example of how to live and how to die. And trust and do good. He can safely keep and guard our soul. If you're getting stoned to death, if you're being crucified upside down, if you're dying of cancer, or if you are simply trying to do good to your neighbor in this world and trust your soul. Your soul is precious. It is a valuable thing. It is the most valuable thing that you have. Do not trust yourself with it. You got it? Do not trust yourself with your soul. You are not a safe and secure repository for the soul that God has given to you. Do not entrust your soul to a bank. Do not entrust your soul to barns that you build to store up good things for your future from earlier in Luke, if you recall it. There is a safe repository for your soul. There is a place, there is a one who can keep it safe for you. Entrust it, entrust it to your faithful creator in doing that which is good. Finally then, in our passage, we have the reactions of the people who were there. And once again, Luke is wonderful with all of a sudden giving us quick snapshots of people who were in the place. And he uses the same, the same thing that he has done throughout the gospel. The way he refers to this is there are people who saw. So seeing is the metaphor. Seeing is the means by which Luke conveys what, they're ha what is happening with them and how they are reacting to the particular situation. Sight requires light. And with the death of Jesus, a crack of light is appearing in the midst of the darkness by which people start to see. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. This man was no doubt the centurion in charge of those who had crucified Jesus. And behold, a Roman centurion joins a thief in praising Jesus, in recognizing 
what has taken place. One who had just done the deed. Do you wonder if you can be forgiven? Could God forgive you? Well, well this, guy, this guy did it. It was his, his guys who put the nails in the hands and who stood him up. And he praises God through the Spirit of God. There is a light that begins to shine in his soul that all of a sudden he realizes, whoops, I got that one mixed up. I thought he was the guilty one. Pilate told me to crucify him. I'm the guilty one. He was innocent. He was innocent. I just crucified the Son of God. Jesus no more than dies when new life begins to break out. A seed buried in the ground, and immediately at the death, life starts coming up. New fruit, the first fruit. This guy right here, this guy's the first fruit of the death of Jesus Christ. Next, Luke takes us to the crowds. Now, the people, no doubt, throughout the day, kind of, there was probably an ebb and flow of people, right? It was a long time. People from the beginning of the day on up to this point. Some people come, some people go, some people want to stay around, and they want to stay around for what? The spectacle. Men on a cross, all the stuff that's going on. We want to see what is there. These are the people who had shouted out earlier in the day, crucify him, crucify him, let Barabbas go, crucify that one. But a change occurs in them, and they too see. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Something happened. Darkness. Spirit of God declarations of Jesus, instead of crucify him, beating their breasts, a sign of repentance. I, the publican, remember the, the story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican who come and pray at the temple? The publican comes beating his breast as he comes to that place. And this seems to be then for these people the beginnings of repentance, the initial pangs of a guilty conscience, of a recognition of what they have done, of what, that has taken, what has taken place here. And it is an indicator of the work of the Spirit of God. It isn't complete, but it appears to have been started here. Perhaps some of these people who were standing in Jerusalem at this time, who were part of this crowd, would, in a few short days, a few short weeks, have been there when Peter preached when Peter preached to them and said to them, you're the ones who did this. You are the ones who have crucified this Jesus whom God made both Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And Peter has a great answer. What should you do? When you recognize what has taken place and your complicity in it, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. The next group that 
Luke points out to us are the acquaintances and the women who had followed at a distance, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, they're watching, they're seeing what is taking place, but there is a distance between them and Jesus. And that distance is kind of a distance of we're not exactly sure what to make of all of this. They're watching it as it take place in Psalm 38, our confession earlier. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. There's a, there's a processing, a grief, of course, but a processing of what is going on and what is happening with Jesus. They watch. Joseph is the first to take action. Others watch and speak. Joseph of Arimathea takes action. We see in Joseph an example of a faithful Israelite, a Jewish leader, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the council, a good and righteous man waiting for the kingdom of God. Just when you are ready to write off all the Jews, just when you're ready to say, listen, all of the Jews of Jerusalem came together to crucify Jesus, they took him up to Pilate, the centurion is first, the second fruit, the second fruit that, points, that we're pointing to by Luke is say, don't think you can rest on all your assumptions about who people are. Because there's this man named Joseph of Arimathea, and he was a good man, he was a righteous man, and he took courage. And he went up to Pilate and said, can I have that body? I want to take care of him. I want to take him down, and I want to bury him properly. Now, others will follow in his stead. In fact, we don't, we don't get to read it here in Luke, but I can't, I can't fail to mention that the other guy who's really helping Joseph of Arimathea, you know who it is, right? Nicodemus. <laughs> Nicodemus is the other one who's there helping him in this whole thing. And the women are close by. At this point, they have moved into the scene as well, watching closely what is going on, following where is he going to be buried, getting the spices together. But Joseph takes care of Jesus and his death and provides him with an honorable burial, probably washing the bloodied body, wrapping it up, and as we read in other Gospels, putting spices all around the body. A Roman centurion and a Jewish leader. Unlikely first fruits, but there they are. And they put him in the tomb, a clean tomb. He arrived in Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden on. He is buried in a tomb that had never had anyone else in it. No decay had ever taken place in that tomb, and Jesus is laid there. The women of Galilee not the daughters of Jerusalem, by the way. Earlier in the passage, on the way to the cross, Jesus had addressed the daughters of Jerusalem. This is the women of Galilee who had come with him, named in other Gospels, not named here so much. But they are preparing the spices, and they wait while the Sabbath comes in. They rest as faithful Jews would do. It was the end of a dark day, and yet light had been breaking through already. 
And in fact, the translation, verse 54, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. If you have your Bibles open at the bottom of your page, it probably has a little footnote for the word beginning. The actual translation is the Sabbath was dawning. A new Sabbath was dawning for the people of God. When the Sabbath begins still for Jews, a candle is lit. A light is lit at the beginning of Sabbath. And a light is lit here at the beginning of this Sabbath as well. As deep as the darkness would was, it could not overcome the light of the world. My friends, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, may we believe and walk in the light. Paul says that as a result of our faith, as a result of our belief, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. May we then continue entrusting our souls to Jesus, to his Father, and doing good in his name. As we do that, as we believe like that, as we live like that, we honor Jesus Christ in his death. We remember his death well. Let's pray together.